Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are lots of numbers that seem like they are always on the rise. The national debt, college tuition, but there is one number that has been falling for decades and has now reached record lows. Last month, the U.S. government reported that our birth rate in 2016 was the lowest on record. The birth rate has actually mostly been below replacement level since the 1970s, meaning that if we were just to rely on people having kids, our population would be shrinking. Over her lifetime, an American woman now has about 1.8 children, half the fertility rate of the 1950s. And the decline shows no signs of stopping. Obviously, there are consequences of this on our personal lives, but there are all sorts of other effects on American society. Who is going to create the products and make the breakthroughs of the future? Who will fill the jobs or fuel the economy? Here to talk about how this trend is reshaping American society are Dowell Myers, a demographer and professor of public policy at the University of Southern California, and Faraborz Gadar, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also director of the Center for Global Business Studies at Penn State. Dowell and Faraborz, welcome. Thank you. Well, thank you. So, uh, Dowell, you have talked about a couple of important forces um, in terms of population. Uh, One is that birth rates, of course, have dropped, um, and immigration has also plunged in the U.S. And you've said that's not good news. Tell me why. Well, we need workers when the baby boomers retire. There's 58 million baby boomers uh, that were employed, and they're about one-third of the way out of the labor force already. And there's not enough replacements behind them. You either get kids to grow up and be workers, <laughs> or you import workers, which is called immigration. Mm. And we're down on both scores. So when you say you're concerned, and look, as baby boomers get older, somebody's got to do the job, somebody's got to create the tax base. Do you feel like, well, I mean, baby boomers are already many of them at retirement age or getting there very fast. Do you feel like it's already too late to solve this problem? Uh, yeah, we should have solved it uh, 10 or 20 years ago, like, mm. all, like a lot of problems. <laughs> but we got to start from where we are. I don't think we realize just how bad this is going to be. People were studying it. They were worried about it, but it was kicking the can down the road. It wasn't mm. an issue. The real thing is that capitalism depends on having consumers. And, and these kids are, are going to grow up to be workers and taxpayers, but they're consumers. Mm-hmm. Without them, businesses can't thrive. It's a really interesting problem. Can we... How do we grow the economy if we don't have consumers? Mm-hmm. Uh, Fairboards, you think a lot about uh, the economy and where it's headed. How do you see these sorts of demographic shifts impacting the future of America's economy? Well, there's a couple of things. Going back to the immigration issue, we have a lot of immigrants with low skills. We have a lot of immigrants at high skills. So if we shrink the immigration population, we will be hurting ourselves from the high-tech area, and we also will make it more difficult for the agricultural sector or other areas to basically use the service. So it's a little bit complicated, as uh, Professor Meyer says, in terms of the segment of the society and the economic uh, component. And if you look at the, the population change over time, 
some 43% of the millennials are going to be non-white. Hmm. Now, that has implication to all sorts of segments of society. So, for example, our music is going to be different than the music we had before, or hmm. the type of clothes we're going to wear is going to be different. So even if you look at some retailers, for example, as the population becomes more uh, Latin, you see stores like Zara become much more effective in selling to the community. I wonder this from both of you, but uh, Fairbors, I'll start with you. Um, is this issue of, uh, you know, fewer births per woman, um, you know, not having enough uh, tax base maybe or not enough consumers simply to keep an economy really powered up? Is that all across the world? And are there countries that have sort of figured out a better answer to it than, than the U.S. has figured out? Sure. It is very different around the world. I mean, if you look at countries like South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera, you have birth rates of 1.3, mm. 1.32. Same thing applies in the southern uh, Europe. Uh, you know, the Greeks, the Italians have, you know, somewhere around 1.35, 1.4. And so that population is aging very rapidly. And if it went from immigration uh, the population would shrink. And in fact, in Japan, immigration is very difficult. It's tough to swim across the Japanese yeah, Sea. Exactly. And so, so therefore, that population has been shrinking since uh, 2006. I mean, it's been shrinking mm. fairly rapidly. So yeah, it is very different. And then, of course, you have countries where the average woman has six, seven kids. Mm. And so then the question becomes, you know, who's going to feed them? Who's going to give them education? What are they going to do about housing? And that's a Middle Eastern Africa situation, which is quite quite different right, than right. The Japan and the South Korea's. Dal, tell me what you see when you look around the world. Well, the industrialized world is, is fairly similar with having low and falling um, birth rates. I agree with the points just made, you know, that Southern Europe is worse off than Northern Europe, and Japan and Korea are really among the, the most challenged. So they were mm. down at 1.2 babies per woman, but I think they're up a little bit right now. Mm. Japan solved it all by long ago by, if you call it a solution, um, because they're going to die at the rate they're going, ex go extinct, really, literally. They're worried mm. about it. Uh, th their solution is automation. They try to replace all the workers they can with machinery, and we may be following that path as well. Um, th that's not really a very warm and fuzzy solution. Right. Uh, but, it, it, you know, they, they also... We're more successful because we do have immigration that comes in, and we're, we're a nation of immigrants. We, we know how to incorporate them. The Europeans have a hard time bringing in immigrants. J Japan really repels immigrants. They don't attract them at all, make it very difficult. So we, our birth rate is higher for that reason because mm -hmm. we have a more inclusive uh, uh, history, and we know how to do it. We're comfortable with doing it, despite what frictions you do hear about. They're, they're minor here compared to other parts of the world. I would say one thing about that Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries have a higher birth rate in part because they figured out a way to help women have a job and have a, a role as, as a mother. They combine them and it's, it's a more gender equal society and they have more social support system. The, the countries that do worse are in Southern Europe and in um, Japan and Korea are more uh, hierarchical and uh, patriarchal. Mm and a little more rigid. And, and in those environments, the, the women have a harder time coping. And so they kind of rebel from uh, playing the mother role and also supporting the mother-in-law and working. They, they're just not able to combine it the way they can in Scandinavia. 
You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Dowell Myers, a professor at USC, and Faraburz Gadar, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Now, uh, uh, Dowell, uh, you, you both talked about this, but Dowell, I'll start with you. Um, a lot of people, including both of you, have really said when one of the solutions here is if you're not having your own children, you bring in uh, people from the outside. You bring in immigrants. Now, in the U.S., at least, that does not seem to be the direction we're going. If anything, we seem to be going the opposite direction, right, bringing in fewer immigrants. Now, obviously, a lot of that stuff, a lot of those moves in terms of immigration are are relatively recent, and this is a big, big country we're talking about. So. So, Dowell, give me a sense of what the numbers here are and whether, you know, recent moves will really change the big picture at all for the U.S. Well, immigration has been subsiding since about 2000 in the U.S. And then it, after the Great Recession hit, it dropped more, more sharply. Hmm. Immigrants largely come for jobs. Mm-hmm. And if there's no jobs, they're not motivated to, to move in. But um, our biggest change is that Mexico has ceased to be a major um, source of immigration for the U.S. It used to be you know, virtually half of all our immigrants, or at least 40 percent, and it, it's, uh, it's way down. Uh, the net flow is, is zero across the, the southern border with Mexico. They, they have a diminishing number of young people in their country, so they don't have the need to export their surplus kids the way they did in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our cost of living here is so high that it's just not worth their while to come, come north. There are also some repellent factors for them. Uh, you know, the, the, the rhetoric they hear about uh, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment doesn't encourage them either. But if, if they needed jobs, they would come north here. They, I, the Mexican economy, I think, is really able to absorb all mm. of its young people, and mm-hmm. it, that's changed it. So now, now we're getting uh, much more from, from Asia. Asia has really uh, been rising still. Uh, while, while Mexico dried up, Asia's rising. On balance, we're down in total numbers of immigrants, but the Asian numbers are up. And they tend to be more highly skilled, more highly educated also. So that's feeding the high end of the uh, skills distribution. Um, and without Asian immigrants, we'd be in trouble. We wouldn't have enough um, doctors and surgeons and, mm. and computer scientists. Mm. And, you know, it, we're kind of happy to have more immigrants. We also need more immigrants at the low skill. I would point out, that with the aging baby boomers are going to need more health care, both from the doctors and from the nurses and the orderlies and other support staff. Um, the hospitals uh, have both the high and the low end immigrant skills um, right. that are, are predominant there. Right. Uh, Fairbors, do you see this debate about immigration that's happening on, on a political level intersecting at all with this sort of demographic realities of an aging population without a lot of young people being born um, in America. Right. Actually, if, um, very much so. If you look at um, the way immigration was when I was a graduate student and the way immigration is right now in our colleges and our universities, you know, 25 years ago, you got your PhD or you got your master's. You were dying to stay in the U.S. Mm. Right now, it's somewhat difficult for the students to sort of justify that they want to stay here. At the same time, alternatives to going back home are becoming quite attractive. Mm-hmm. So I have a teaching assistant who was Chinese, and she decided to go back to Hong Kong. I mean, the the sure. deal She couldn't make a much better deal there than she could staying in New York City. Same thing with an Indian who decided to go back to Bangalore. So we're having difficulty keeping them 
at the same time, other countries um, are attracting them. So mm -hmm. Canada has been much more effective in targeting highly skilled people and inviting them to come. So I, I was in uh, Southern California. I saw this billboard that said, if you have difficulty getting your green card, you know, contact us in uh, Vancouver. <laughs> also. And, and I, I looked at this and I said, this is in Silicon Valley. I mean, this yeah. is... Uh, so that element is very difficult. And so on one hand, we're being more difficult in bringing them in. On the other hand, other people are being much more open and right, bringing them right. back in. We've heard that here before about, about Canada. And as you say, you know, the China of 1987 is not the China of 2017. So China itself, just forget how we're acting, um, has a lot more opportunities for Chinese people. Absolutely. But even on the healthcare, non-China, non-India, there are more Egyptian doctors in the United States than they are in Egypt. Wow. Um, so, I mean, these are statistics that are just mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. Dowell, one thing you've said is that we're seeing a kind of mismatch between who votes, which is uh, very often older white people, and then who needs services to kind of craft this economy of the future, which is young and increasingly non-white people. Tell me about, like, the consequence of that mismatch. Well, I'd be happy to talk about that. It's an interesting problem I face in my personal life because I'm getting older and I want to vote for my <laughs> own benefits. But I, you know, also have kids and maybe a grandkid, and I need to worry about that. If you don't have enough workers, another solution is to actually make all the existing children grow into be higher capacity workers. Mm -hmm. So instead of quantity, we make up with more quality. We could invest more in our children, and they could then earn more, pay higher taxes, and support more old people. The old people are going to be here regardless. We're not going away. And we're going to keep voting. And the trick is to help people think ahead just 20 years. And I do this when I do public speaking. I ask people, you know, I, I basically play a joke with them about knowing the future. And one thing I know for sure is that everybody in the room is going to be 20 years older. Um, <laughs> And yet we don't vote that way. We, right, vote, we right. vote about the present. Right. And, and education is all about investing in the future. And we're just trying to survive in the present and clutch onto our own, our own uh, benefits. And in so doing, we're shrinking the pie, not growing the pie. Well, you know, you talked about education, and I guess I wonder if in communities with a large older population, I, and I mean people who don't have school-age kids anymore, um, People are thinking, oh, you know, I, I want to help other people's kids because in 20 years, those people will be my home health aide or those people will be my doctor or my nurse or my, you know, whatever. I don't know if, you know, that's what happens, but you, you tell me. Well, areas that have a lot of retirement migration have a real disconnect between the older people who have no roots in the community and then the local residents who also probably look ethnically different as well. So there's an ethnic divide. But mainly they just don't have any, any roots, no history. And they uh, don't, just don't have a sense of investing in the future because they haven't lived there and participated in a trajectory of development over time. They just dropped in. Arizona's got it bad that way. Uh, and they, they're people who escape from the Midwest and they come down to the, living on the Mexican border and they want to pretend like it's a, a holiday resort and not a place where people are actually growing up and taking jobs. Hmm. Dowell, uh, if a government official from a state government, from a federal government, came to you and said, look, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I see the situation coming down the pike. We're having fewer kids. We've obviously got a large cohort of people getting older. 
what is like the single best thing that you would recommend we do? I would take a little bit longer view and emphasize the children and start to treat our children, other people's kids, as a precious asset, as a scarce resource, a diminishing resource that we need more than, we need literally need about twice as much as before because of the number of older people. And we are investing less and less in that resource instead of more and more. I don't think we've gotten out of the mentality. We used to, in the 1950s and 60s, we had too many kids. We were swimming in kids. <laughs> and we got used to, you know, kind of letting them go and, and, you know, ignoring bunches of them. And right now we can't afford to have any dropouts. We need all hands on deck. And we should start getting serious about making sure that every kid has good health care. Every kid has a good education. Every kid, uh, you know, has a supportive environment around them so that each kid can develop their fullest capacity. Otherwise, we're not going to have enough people to do all the things that we want done. Dowell Myers is a demographer. He's professor of public policy at the University of Southern California. And Faraborz Gadar is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's also director of the Center for Global Business Studies at Penn State. Thank you so much to both of you. That was great. Pleasure. One of the most unexpected consequences of the decline in birth rate is that counties around the country are going to have a lot of school buildings and not enough students to fill them. We've got an article about how L.A. County is dealing with that on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. And from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. About 15 years ago, Jeff Karp was a young scientist, and he was sitting in lab one day when he saw something that surprised him. Spider-Man. It was like this Spider-Man action figure attached to the ceiling. But Spider-Man wasn't on his ceiling. He was in a picture on a colleague's desk, and the picture was looking out at him from one of the most prestigious science journals out there, Nature. I think it was probably the first time that any, like, you know, action figure had ever appeared in a, a Nature journal. Carp, who's now an associate professor at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School, couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. Not surprisingly, he wanted to know what any of us would want to know. How do you get a Spider-Man action figure into a top-level science journal? Turns out, you tape him to the ceiling in a very crafty way. So I went and checked out that paper, and the authors had... Um, take some learnings from how geckos attach to surfaces, you know, even like a single toe, they can hold on to a, a vertical surface or a ceiling, for example. Uh, and they had mimicked that and created a synthetic tape that they used to kind of stick Spider-Man to the ceiling. And that really opened up the, my world of, of uh, this whole new world of, uh, of bio-inspiration. So back up here for a second. Geckos. How do they stick to ceilings? Well, they capitalize on these very weak attractions that different objects naturally have for each other. And that attraction is generally so weak that we don't notice it. But geckos have figured out how to maximize it. They have all these little hairs on their feet that if you actually look at the hairs under a microscope, you realize 
They're more like little pillars. And the little pillars are made up of even tinier pillars. So you've got all this weak attraction between the gecko's foot pillars and this smooth wall that they're trying to climb up. But remember, they've got tons of these pillars and tons of these weak connections. And what that does is when you put that onto a surface, it can get into all the nooks and crannies on a surface and maximizes the contact. So you've got your geckos with their special mini pillars on their feet, which allow them to stick to almost anything. And the scientists had taken that idea to build a tape that was super strong, but was not hard to take off, which can come in handy. So think about ripping tape off of a piece of paper, for example, and the damage that that could do to an important document. It would be nice to have a piece of tape that didn't do any damage. But Jeff Karp was not working on important documents. He was working on medicine-related projects, and he started to realize the power that the gecko approach could have for the human body. Because I had been talking to a lot of um, doctors, you know, clinicians, uh, and and it was really apparent to me there was a ton of problems in medicine where sutures and staples were just subpar. They weren't working. They had significant limitations. And so immediately thought that if we could develop a biodegradable gecko-inspired tape that could be implanted anywhere in the body and stick to tissues, that this may be able to address uh, a lot of problems in medicine. CARP did develop that tape for medical uses, but his lab also started down a path that's becoming increasingly important for science, pulling inspiration out of nature. So borrowing from millions of years of these crafty evolutionary adaptations. And it turned out the gecko tape was only the beginning. This led us to develop a, a new tissue glue, which was inspired by sandcastle worms in the sea that sit on rocks, and as the surf hits them, they remain attached, uh, as well as slugs and snails that you sometimes see on the surface of a leaf, uh, and it's raining and they're not moving, they're kind of stuck there. And through inspiration from these creatures and understanding the mechanisms of how they, um, they interact with surfaces, we developed a tissue glue that can attach to almost any tissue in the body. Um, and this glue has actually advanced all the way to human clinical testing. So right now it's undergoing a, a clinical trial in Europe as part of a company, Gecko Biomedical, um, that's testing it for vascular reconstruction. And if all goes well, it, it could be on the market in the near future. So let me take a minute with that tissue glue. I went into Karp's lab with a couple of his undergrads to see how this glue works. My name is Christian Panicha, and I am a research intern at the lab. My name is Yang Sheng Liu, and I am an undergraduate research intern here. So in particular, we are trying to solve this ventricular septal defect, or VSD. This is when there is a hole right in the middle of the wall of your heart, which will cause the blood to flow from the left chamber and right chamber and vice versa. And this has many complications to the patient. Fixing this problem in newborns is nearly impossible. And it's tough on adults too. Because basically a doctor has to put a bunch of stitches into your heart, which is traumatic for a body. CARP's solution is glue, and a very special glue. One that works even in the really wet environment of the heart. That's why we look to nature for creatures such as slugs, mussels, sandcastle worms. They secrete these glues, which allow them to stick in wet environments. So you plug a hole in the heart with glue, no stitches, which means the body has a lot less healing to do. So now we can actually see the glue in action. Here we just have a simple tube to mimic a blood vessel. 
and in a little piece of plastic piping, they made a hole, they spread on the glue, which basically has the consistency of honey, and they dried it with a UV light. Okay, we're putting our UV glasses, okay. So you can see the glue has hardened. Oh yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, it's hard, yep. Patching no. up that little hole. All right, so now we're gonna put water through it and just hope that it doesn't come out the hole part, right? A hole in the heart repaired with glue inspired by slugs. So now let's go back to my discussion with the head of the lab, Jeff Karp, a professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We've been really inspired by um, the regenerative potential um, of, uh, of a number of creatures in nature. Um, for example, we know, you know sharks can regenerate their teeth throughout life. We know that certain types of lizards, you can cut off their tail or their you know, whole limb and it will completely regrow. Um, and then we know, you know birds and, and uh, amphibians like frogs and toads can completely regenerate their hearing throughout life. And so we've been very inspired by this. And during the past um, several years, I've been trying to understand the um, biology of tissue regeneration in the human body. Um, And through these studies, we uncovered um, drugs that can actually um, generate new hair cells in the inner ear to potentially restore hearing. There's, uh, you know, 48 million people in the U.S. um, that have uh, hearing deficits, and uh, there are no drugs that are currently available um, to to treat people with hearing loss. Uh, And our hope is that, um, you know, that the uh, drug combinations that we've come up with um, will be able to restore uh, and regenerate the tissue in the cochlea where you have these hair cells, um, and this will lead to significant improvements in hearing. Um, Is there something on the market that you can think of that has been through that process, and you can say, you know that thing that we know about or that you use or that it happens when you get surgery? That is inspired by nature. Well, there's a wonderful um, example of a bio-inspired product that I think almost everybody on the planet is probably aware of, or most people, and that's Velcro. Uh, Velcro was a uh, discovery that somebody had when they were walking through the woods and a burr attached to their clothing. Um, They were very curious and had access to an electron microscope. And they went and took a look and they saw it was like these kind of hook and loop structures. The hooks were coming from the surface of the burrs and the loops were in the, the clothing. And they had the idea that maybe this could be a universal adhesive. And so what they did is they went and developed a uh, Velcro, which essentially is a hook and loop structure um, that was inspired by burrs in nature. Bigger than just your lab, where do you think this idea of, you know, biomimicry and inspiration from nature, where do you think it's heading? Are there areas where you think it could particularly, like, be a game changer? I think it can help in almost everything. I mean, we've seen even business businesses that have looked to the Amazon rainforest to see how different creatures, plants and animals live in harmony and what's that communication like and you know where constant inspiration leads to constant innovation, you know? And then even, you know, high-speed trains in in uh, Japan, there's a, the kingfisher bird that has this incredibly aerodynamic beak, and it was modeled after that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's just almost every industry, there's examples of, of bio-inspiration. And what I find really fascinating is that it's almost like nature is an encyclopedia of solutions, 
and new chapters are constantly being written as our tools get better and better. So we're able to look at things at higher resolution and look at things we've never looked at before. We're able to uncover new solutions. So I, I see this as really endless possibilities. Jeff Karp is an associate professor at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and at Harvard Medical School. And speaking of endless possibilities, we talked a lot longer, but I'm going to mention just one more nature-inspired project that CARP has worked on. It's one that I've mentioned to everyone I know, and it may just be the most unusual one of all. So you have to get up very close to the porcupine in order for these quills to uh, to insert. But I think it's definitely a very strong reminder if you've ever encountered a porcupine at a close distance that that will likely be the last time you will ever want to get near one. <laughs> yep, you heard correctly, porcupine quills, which Carp was so impressed by that he put them in his neck. I wanted to just get a sense of like, you know, what that felt like. And I'll tell you what was what was really amazing to me is that you almost don't even need to, you, as soon as you touch the quill to skin, it, it, it inserts immediately into the tissue. So it almost requires close to zero force. It, it, it's remarkable. But as easy and painless as porcupine quills are going in, they're just as bloody and painful coming out. Now, why is this interesting? Well, if you've had surgery, you may have been given surgical staples, and they rip tissue a little. So CARP says you can get bacteria and you can get infections around where the staples went in. Plus, someday, they've got to come out. CARP is working on a staple that will insert like a quill, smoothly, without ripping skin, so there is no place for the infection to start. His goal is to make them completely biodegradable, so over time they break down rather than ever having to be taken out again. If you want to know more about porcupine quills and about the gecko-inspired tape that got Carp to pursue biomimicry, we will have all that at our website as well as the picture of the Spider-Man action figure. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub's environmental and sustainability reporting is provided by the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. Almost 20 years ago now, a work of social science unexpectedly became a bestseller. The book was called Bowling Alone, and its author, Robert Putnam, argued that the structures in American society had been breaking down for decades. We were moving into separate orbits, involved in our communities less, belonging to religious groups less often, and yes, we were going bowling alone. For the last 20 years, the institutions that bind us together have become even less important to a lot of Americans. More of us say that we don't trust our fellow Americans who we elected to lead us. More Americans have moved away from religion. If once we were bowling alone, maybe we've moved now into a world where we don't even bother heading to a central location for bowling. Maybe online bowling is good enough. The problem is that there are all sorts of consequences for the fact that we're breaking apart. And one of the most important ones is loneliness. 
Dhruv Kumar sees the medical implications of loneliness as a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also a contributor to The New York Times. And John Cassiopo has studied loneliness for decades. He's a professor of psychology and director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, uh, Dhruv, just give me a sense, as a practicing physician, tell me what you're seeing in terms of the effect of isolation and loneliness um, in patients that you treat. Sure. Well, there's uh, obviously a lot of research and a growing body of research now that suggests that social isolation and loneliness has all sorts of negative health consequences. But what really got me interested in the topic was the stories of the patients that I was seeing on a day-to-day basis. And you really see when you're in the hospital, when you're in the clinic, how socially isolated a lot of these people are, whether it's someone who doesn't have a ride home after a colonoscopy, or it's uh, some of our patients that are struggling with opioid addiction and no longer have uh, friends and family that are supporting them, older people who are in um, apartments uh, isolated that they're unable to clean, unable to care for themselves. These are things that as doctors, as other clinicians, nurses, we see every day, and it's a kind of a really sad uh, consequence of, I think, what's happening on a broader scale in our society, and, and we see kind of the end result in the emergency departments and the clinics and in the hospitals. Can you remember, like, a specific case um, that you had that either, like, you stopped a colleague, you know, in the hall afterwards and was like, whoa, I've, like, I've got to tell you about this, or, you know, you wrote about it, or, or whatever? Sure. Um, well, one of the cases that really struck me and I felt really compelled to, to write about in an article a few months ago was a patient at the end of his life. And he was a patient that uh, was very ill, and it was clear that he'd be passing away in the next uh, either few hours, few days, a week at most. And hmm. one of the things I asked him was, you know, did he have anyone that he wanted to see, anyone that I should call to make sure that he was able to see a family member or a close friend uh, before he passed away? Uh, and he told me he didn't have anyone, not a single person in this world that he wanted to see before uh, he passed away. And that uh, was kind of the most acute um, way that I'd hmm. seen this play out. And it really struck me. And it was a really uh, sad moment for, for the patient and I think uh, for, for all those caring for him as well. Hmm. Um, John, you talked about uh, the implications of loneliness for our health. In recent decades, what have we come to understand about the impact that loneliness has on us um, health-wise? Well, we know from a variety of longitudinal studies now that loneliness above and beyond uh, objective isolation uh, predicts early morbidity mortality. Uh, it's a 26% increase in the odds of uh, premature mortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about the same effect size as chronic obesity. So that's, a, that's quite a, a, a large uh, effect. We also know that the prevalence of people who feel lonely all the time is 5 to 10%. Uh, and people who are struggling with loneliness at least some of the time uh, adds another 30 to 40 percent of our mm-hmm. population. So it's it's a condition whose prevalence also matches uh, chronic obesity now. It, when you talk about obesity as being... Um you know, similar to loneliness in in terms of um, its effects. 
I mean, maybe it's just me, but I feel like obesity gets way more airtime in the media in terms of, I think people would be far more concerned about obesity um, and becoming obese and its effect on their health than they would about loneliness. Do you think that's true? I do. Um, research suggests that loneliness is stigmatized. People have a misconception of loneliness. Um, they tend to think of it as a loner or someone who has poor social skills. And our population-based research has shown that's not the case, that um, when you look at a random sample of Americans, loneliness can befall anyone. And it used to be characterized, even in the scientific literature, as a state with no redeeming features. And we now know uh, that's not the case. It's actually uh, part of our biological warning machinery that helps us protect our social body, which we need to survive and prosper. Hmm. Well, and since the 80s or the 90s, when people really started using computers, um, obviously a lot more than they had before, have we seen a major uptick in uh, loneliness? It really depends on how the digital media are being used. Uh, social networking is, is a tool, just like driving a car is a tool. If you use social media uh, as a destination, uh, you spend your days tending the friends uh, that you have online. It's been shown to increase loneliness, increase depression. Uh, if instead it's used as a way station, as a means of uh, maintaining connections and promoting, uh, leveraging face-to-face -face interactions, it's actually associated with a decrease. So there's not much of a net change as, as a result of social media. But what you do see is, unfortunately, people who feel lonely more likely to then uh, migrate to social media as a destination, uh, making their loneliness uh, worse and, and more chronic. Hmm. I wonder how much people in the medical community talk about this. Uh, in 2016, the Surgeon General shockingly said, this is a quote, we are facing an epidemic of loneliness and social isolation. That almost doesn't seem like something a Surgeon General would talk about, but he did. Um, so is this something that doctors talk about that is thought about enough? I think the medical profession is increasingly recognizing that this is a real problem. And traditionally, things like spiritual well-being, emotional well-being have not been part of what we've been thinking about, what we've been researching, what we've been trying to address. And so uh, I think we're starting to turn the corner. People are starting to talk more about it. We certainly see this every day uh, when, we're, when we're working with patients, but it's not something we've really dedicated a lot of resources to addressing just yet. And I think mm. some very small steps could be helpful here. I think the first step is just to screen patients when we're talking to them uh, in the clinic or in the hospital for whether they are isolated and uh, and lonely. So we screen people for all sorts of things. We screen them for cancer. We screen them uh, for depression. Um, I think the next step is to screen people with one, two, or three questions uh, about whether they're socially isolated. Do they have someone that they can talk about uh, important things with? Do they have someone to give them a ride home uh, if they're having a medical procedure? procedure. Just a few questions could get us a long way to identifying who might need a little bit more help and who we could help connect with other people. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Dhruv Kumar, a contributor to the New York Times and a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital, and John Cassiopo, a psychology professor and the director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. 
So, Dhruv, is there anything that you or other doctors that you know have actually done to make people feel less lonely? Um, I mean, like when that situation arises where somebody says, I don't have anybody to pick me up from a colonoscopy. And obviously for everybody who has undergone that procedure, that is one of the questions they ask you. You cannot drive yourself home. So, like, who's picking you up? Right. Well, I would say a few things. The first is that, unfortunately, often in the hospital, our focus is uh, very medical. And so the things that we're doing, given the time pressures, given the pressure to be efficient, we're very focused on what procedure we're going to be doing, uh, what drug we're ordering, how we're going to treat this person medically. And one of the things that, one of the shifts that I would like to see happen is trying to uh, get students, residents, faculty to step back and uh, have uh, kind of the, the insight and the time and, and create the time to really uh, be with people and, and to reconceptualize what it means to be efficient in the hospital, not just um, by how many procedures we do and how many drugs we do we 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 give but um, how we're able to to connect with people recognizing that that is an important part of um, uh, the therapy that they receive the other thing that I would say is that you know as we're recognizing that social isolation is important for all sorts of things whether people are depressed their cardiovascular health whether they take their medications uh, that is a really important insight in the next wave of of the way that we care for people and by recognizing that uh, if we're treating people's loneliness, if we're treating their social isolation, we're also treating all the other uh, health things that come uh, as a consequence of being socially isolated. It's a really important financial case to invest more heavily in uh, reducing social isolation. Hmm. Uh, John, can you tell me about loneliness at different points in our lives? Like when we are, when are we most susceptible to being lonely? When are people most commonly saying that they are alone, that they're just like, either that I mean, they don't have to be alone and that there's no other people, but that they feel alone. All right. There's a couple points across one's lifespan where you're more likely to be going through upheavals of uh, your social world, your social relationships, um, puberty, um, going off to college, um, being coming an empty nester, divorce, uh, bereavement, and very late life in adulthood. Those are the some of the events across a lifespan that predict an increase in, in loneliness. And are there um, areas in there that you've seen really change since you've been measuring this, which you said has been like about 20 years, but not quite? One of the areas uh, we saw change was uh, 2008 when there was the market upheaval and people uh -huh. were Interesting. Uh, pressed into more difficult circumstances. Um, we we found uh, some of the we have a longitudinal study that was going on. We found some of the individuals spending more time working, not too surprisingly, uh, and less time enjoying uh, time with their family and friends. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that we often think you know being there in difficult times is an important part of friendships and family, and that's true. But we underestimate the importance of sharing good times mm -hmm. with friends and family, and those are being sacrificed and. Individuals in our study um, started to appear at the dinner table uh, feeling distant from their friends and family, uh, just as the family members felt distant from this breadwinner who was no longer, you know, much of an active part of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of change uh, we have seen uh, as, as they were economic upheavals over the last several um, years. 
Uh, Dhruv, you've written about a program called Link Ages that uh, Paul Tang at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation started. Tell me a little bit about that and why um, it gives you some hope for how we could deal with loneliness going forward. Sure. So the the program um, really capitalizes on this idea that what's important to a lot of people um, at the end of life, at the beginning of life, in the middle, is uh, being kind of a valued and contributing member of society, recognizing that everyone has something to offer, uh, whether that's something small or something large. And so this program works by uh, allowing members to post something online through the app that they need help with. And that could be any number of things. It could be they want uh, to learn how to play the guitar, or they want a Scrabble partner, they just need a ride mm. to the doctor's office, uh, any of these things. And then another member might see that request and uh, volunteer to fill that need. And in the process, they bank a few hours, quote unquote, bank a few hours on the app um, for when they need something in return. And so one Mm. example that I give uh, in the article that I wrote recently was that a college student might see a post from an older man who needs help with gardening. And she goes over, she helps him plant a row of flowers. She gets two hours uh, in the bank. A couple months later, she wants help cooking uh, a nice dinner that she's never uh, tried to cook this type of meal before. Uh, A chef who's retired sees that post and then comes over and helps Mm. her uh, cook that. And so it's a way to connect people across uh, a community. And it has hundreds of members in in California now, and they're hoping to expand to other areas of the country as well. Um, But I really love the program because uh, it doesn't just stop at making connections online. It really fosters uh, a community by getting people together and recognizing that uh, everyone has something to offer, and it reaffirms that value in all people. It's interesting because it goes back in some ways to a village model. Like in a village, you might borrow some eggs from somebody kind of knowing that in the future they're going to come by and borrow some flour from you. Like, you know, it's it'll even itself out in the end, kind of. Right, exactly. And I think that was one of the goals of the program. And I think, you know, one of the things that Dr. Tang told me was that one of the unfortunate things often in our kind of individualistic society is that you need excuses almost to knock on someone's door to mm-hmm. uh, to start up a conversation at this point. Uh, and he wants to get beyond that. He wants to make it so it's not such a big deal to just knock on your, your neighbor's door and to go across the street and ask for something. And uh, developing those connections again, I think, is really important. John, is there something we should do or we could do on a public policy level, like a mayor could do, a governor could do, you know, uh, I mean, leaders in Washington could do? Um, Certainly there are. Uh, One of the features of Drew's description that suggests a public policy is this emphasis on uh, everyone having value, taking advantage of what they can bring, and a focus on mutuality, not just the provision of support. Uh, That's been one of the misunderstandings about loneliness. It's been thought that they're alone, uh, put them with others, or give them support and they won't be lonely. Uh, If that were the case, uh, patients in hospitals who could press a button and receive support 
uh, wouldn't be lonely, but um, th- that's, in fact, not the case. It's right. not sufficient. And it goes back to the village, as you suggested. Uh, we survived and prospered as a species because of mutual aid and protection. And so just receiving support isn't what our brains have evolved to do. It's to both give and receive. That's what makes you feel like you're part of a community. And so the emphasis on mutuality in these social programs and these public policies uh, is incredibly important. Uh, What we've seen across time is school budgets have become stressed and we've reduced extracurricular activity. And so those opportunities for students to get involved in, in events that would would teach them the skills of community service and mutuality uh, have have diminished over what uh, was the case just a few decades ago. And one public policy implication is to start turning that around, dealing with older adults who are especially vulnerable to, to isolation becoming chronic, uh, similarly, uh, to focus on what they can bring to the community, not simply what the community can give to them. That mutuality uh, turns out to be quite critical. Hmm. John Cassiopo is a psychology professor and director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience at the University of Chicago. And Dhruv Kumar is a contributor to the New York Times. He's also a physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Thank you so much to both of you. This was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Only the lonely. On our website, we've got more about the health implications of loneliness, plus an amazing graphic that shows who we spend our time with on a daily basis as we age. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Samantha Crozier and Mariel Carricker. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub is sponsored by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Discover, Care, Believe, and by the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. Public Radio International.